Okay, so my name is Dave, one of the pastors here. If you're new, I'd love to meet with you and, and get to know you. Come say hi to me. Uh, let's grab coffee, keep the conversation going. Uh, but you've stepped into church on a beautiful day. Uh, Ryan started chapter 15 two weeks ago, and then Vula was here last week, and, and she rocked our world in amazing ways. And now I get my chance at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the letter the first letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church he helped start in Corinth, Greece. And uh, why I'm so excited about this is this is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And so for the next four weeks, we get to sit in this chapter and walk through it verse by verse, and hopefully it will become one of your favorite chapters as well. It doesn't have to be your favorite, but hopefully by the end you'll understand why it should be most of our top three or four chapters in the whole Bible, Okay. So, um, why is it my, my favorite? I'll just give you a little uh, overview here, in case you don't know me. Um, death hit my family in a pretty sudden way in 2007. Uh, I was already a follower of Jesus. Um, I already loved him, understood what he had done for me, had given him several parts of my life, though to be honest, not every part of my life. Um, but I thought sort of I was good, uh, meaning safe, meaning I was somehow going to be spared from some of the suffering of this life because I knew this God who loved me. And uh, that untruth was revealed to me on March 17, 2007, when my older sister Kim was instantly killed when she was hit by a semi-truck while riding her bicycle. In an instant... There was no prey. She's on her way to the hospital. It's this second she was as alive as you could possibly be as a 26-year-old woman. She was more dynamic. She was smarter, valedictorian of her high school, magnanimous, popular, lovable, loved everyone. She was more alive than anybody I'd ever known in one second, and in the next second she was dead. Death is probably impacting your life in some way, personally, right now, would be my guess. I don't know how many steps of separation it is from you right now. Typically, in a younger church like ours, maybe we don't think about it as often, but my guess is most of you are impacted in some way by death, the threat of death, the actuality of death by a friend or a family member. Maybe you've done a good job of compartmentalizing it, not thinking about it, not driving by hospitals, changing your running route so you don't run by a graveyard. But it's everywhere. My guess it's impacting you personally in some way. And here's the, the awful reality that our world tries to convince us otherwise. Death will come for us all. You and me, there's no avoiding it. It's the one foe no one can run from. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much technology you have, you cannot run from death. It will come for you personally. So, what the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, what he's writing about, what he's fighting for in this chapter is the only, only antidote for death. The only one. the resurrection of the dead. I believe that there are only three things that we can be absolutely sure of. You've maybe heard that there's only two. I think there's only three. And I want to help you become uh, aware of and convinced that there are three and not two. You've probably heard of the first two, death and taxes. I think there's a third, resurrection. There's only three things you can be sure of in this life. Death, taxes, and resurrection. I had believed that intellectually because I had grown up a Christian, because I was a follower of Jesus. But to be honest, in that moment when death came to my doorstep, I wrestled hard. Do I really believe in the resurrection? And the people of Corinth, they'd heard it, they believed it, but to be honest, the arguments against it started to make some sense to them. 
I'll explain why in a second. But by God's grace, by his indwelling spirit, by his powerful proofs, and part of that is bringing me to this chapter of the Bible after my sister's death, I became convinced. Death, taxes, and resurrection. I can be sure. We'll talk about in a second what being sure of the resurrection actually means in a second. So if you've been around long enough, you've heard me preach on this, talk about this. One of the things I used to, I I gave us a new acronym, acronym a while back, and I'm going to update it. That happens. Sometimes, most times, I have imperfect acronyms, analogies, stories, and so they improve over time. So you've maybe heard me talk about a sermon of... um, do you struggle or do you do you love um, the cry of our generation, which is YOLO? You've heard of this YOLO. You only live once. So I preached a sermon a while back, and I said they got it wrong. It's YOLT, not super catchy, which is you only live twice. So it's true, but I got a better one for you. Rolls off the tongue. YOLAID. Do you want to drink the YOLAID, which is Y-O-L-O-A-D. You only live once after death. You only live once after death. This is what the doctrine of the resurrection teaches us. I want you to drink the Yolaid with me. (laughs) I want you to believe there's only three things you can be sure of. This is why I love chapter 15. You only live once after death. So... I'm pumped for the next four weeks to close out this amazing book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, where we've been talking now for a while about moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. Paul's been talking a lot about how the church in Corinth has been moving out of step with the wisdom of Christ, that they've been looking a lot more like a broken world in the way that they live and interact with one another and worship together and the way they use their bodies sexually and the way they use their tongues and the way, um, all sorts of things. So it's been a lot about what we call orthopraxy, which is right living. Paul's saying, you're not living right. And now he's going to turn to what we call orthodoxy, which is, you're not thinking right. And orthopraxy and orthodoxy, they work together. The things that you think about God will affect the ways you live for God. The ways you live for God will affect the ways you think about God. They're, inter- they're intertwined. And so Paul has been spending a lot of his time, and that's why we picked this book, How Do We as a Church Move in Step, like these, this beautiful bird installation? How do we move together, understanding the word and moving in a way that's beautiful to the world, though paradoxical and a bit scary <laughs> sometimes, but they, people can't take their eyes off of it. So we're talking about moving, and now we're talking about thinking rightly about what the gospel is. So before I read the chapter, I have two pretty big confessions to make. Big confessions. Confession number one. This is hard to say. Before this week, I did not know that the clock app on your iPhone, you know the little icon? Actually represented the actual time. I did not know it till this week. And I was like, that clock's correct. Well, every clock's correct two times. No, it changes. Did you know this? How many of you didn't know? Like, be honest, confess. The clock app changes with the actual time. Is that a new, does anybody work for Apple? Is that a new thing? Or has it always been on time? I have to confess, I've, I felt like a fool. When I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh. I'm glad nobody asked me. That would have been very embarrassing. As a professional thinker, that's what I do for a job. Had I never observed this? So everybody else knew it except there was four of us. Or every, all the rest of you are liars and I'll pray for you. That's the other option. That's confession number one. Confession number two. Before this sermon series started, and I, I shared this with a few people so that they could hold me accountable, and they have failed. Ryan, I see you. I said, my goal is, the promise I made to myself mainly was that I would memorize word for word 
all of chapter 15 so that when I got here 10 months later, I would be able to just close my Bible and say, I've got a message for you. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Jesus Christ, and then I forgot the rest. (laughs) I failed you. I haven't failed you. God understood my weakness, my fallenness, my laziness, and he had this Bible printed for me (laughs) so that I could read it to you. So that's my second confession. It's okay to plan great, wonderful things for God and then fall short. God has grace for you and mercy, and we have the printing press. So I'm very excited to read. I'm going to read. For the next four weeks, we're going to read the whole chapter first, but then we're just going to preach on section, uh, sections of it, okay? So if you've got a Bible, you could uh, grab it, or there's some in the seat back in front of you. If you do grab the ones on the seat back in front of you, we're going to be on page 1,020. 1,020, and I, I would love for you to be able to read along. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. Use the pens that are in the back. Grab a pen. Write in it. Circle things that, oh my goodness, take this to your cohort. If you're in a cohort, if you're not in a cohort, sign up for a cohort. These are medium-sized groups that meet throughout the city during the week. We've got nine and ten of those going right now, and that's fantastic. My group was in this passage studying it before we got here, and I picked up all this wisdom from my group, and now I get to share it as if it's my own. If I forget to footnote you, sorry. I told you I have a bad memory. So here we are. Chapter 15, my favorite chapter in all the Bible. Here it goes. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel, the good news, the good story that I preached to you which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you. Unless, of course, you believed in vain, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. What is that? Here's what I received. That Christ died for our sins according to to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, and most of them are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all. As to one born at the wrong time, Jesus also appeared to me. For I am least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then, whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those, then, who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, they have also perished. 
if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under his feet, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise... What will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did it do me if the dead are not raised? Let us drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, I say. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow... You are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was born from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. He's talking about Jesus. Like the man of dust, so you are, who, so, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that's Jesus. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. He recognizes this is complex, which is why we're taking four weeks. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will all, or sorry, we will not all fall asleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immorality or sorry, immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your, I'll, I'll add lasting, lasting victory. Where death is your lasting sting. 
sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so everything we're teaching is for this therefore. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know, you know, right here, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. I may have started a church just to do that, so that was important to me. <laughs> I, want, I want you to know this chapter of the Bible. I want you to know this promise of God. I want you to know that you can trust it because Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. I want you to know it so that you can be immovable and steadfast and not live as if your life in Christ is in vain. I love you. God loves you. He has given himself for you so that you can experience this new, heavenly, resurrected life. It's not the good news without the resurrection. It's not good news, Paul says. If you remove the resurrection, it's not good news. It's sad news. It's painful news. It's not good. So I'm going to do four things. I'm going to tell you four... Sorry, I'm going to tell you six uh, things that we'll learn in chapter 15. We're going to focus on two or three of them today. So I'm going to tell you what all six are. And then I'm going to talk about the cultural pressures that were on the Corinthians that made them kind of shy away from the doctrine of the resurrection and talk about it less or maybe think it was different than how they had been taught because there's real cultural pressures on us too. So you've got to understand the cultural pressures and why it makes you sort of flavor your gospel in a certain way. Third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about this idea of uh, the vainness of the gospel without the resurrection. The vainness, it's the emptiness of the gospel without the resurrection. And then I'm going to talk about uh, this amazing power of the word but, B-U-T. You're going to love it when we get there, if we get there. Okay, you ready? Here we go. The six things that we'll learn. Um, They happen to be C, (laughs) for those of you who have been around Yes, everything does have to be a C because God told me to ask people to consider Jesus. So everything's a C. I didn't come up with these C's. I was reading a commentary and they had the C's and I was like, seems like this commentary is for me. So here we go. In this chapter, we'll learn about the centrality of the doctrine of the resurrection. The centrality. It is centered to it. It's not like a nice little postscript. It's center to the gospel, centrality. Number two, the certainty of the resurrection. Paul is pushing us to believe in the certainty. You hear how I said it? To believe in the certainty of the resurrection. What does does that mean? We'll talk about that. Um, Paul is teaching about the collective reality of the resurrection. It's a collective reality. It's not just that Jesus was raised, but that we all will be raised. So the collective reality of the doctrine of the resurrection. Number four, the cosmic nature of it. Did you hear it when we read it? The cosmic nature of the resurrection. It's incredible when you start to think about the cosmic nature of the doctrine of the resurrection. Number five, the continuity of the new resurrected body. So we're not getting, like, we'll, we'll remember each other, okay? But, the, but also the discontinuity. So there's continuity and discontinuity in the doctrine of the resurrection. So we'll talk about that. Uh, not this week, but in later weeks. And then we'll talk about the consequence of the doctrine of the resurrection. The weight of it. It has serious weight. And what, what is the weight? How does it change the way we live now? Now, I wanted to bring those up because I don't want you to wait until the last sermon to think about the consequences of this doctrine. One, you may not be here that week, but should be. 
don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss any of these six. But, I mean, it is my favorite chapter, so if you love me at all, just come every week for six weeks and then take a long break if you need to. Okay, so this is it. I've been waiting my whole life for this. Okay, well, since 2007. But ask each and every week, how does that change the way I live? If that's true, if that part of the resurrection we talked about, if that's true, how does it change how I live now? So this is not just a future reality. This has weight now. Okay. So, what is the cultural background here? We need to understand this. Some cultural pressures. The first thing I will say is this. Um, Let's just look at this first verse. Now, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, so now he's quoting them, maybe they had written this to him in a letter or something, or he'd heard that this was like what one of the teachers in the community was teaching. How can, how can some of you, not all of them, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the resurrection of the dead that he's talking about is not Christ's resurrection, Actually, what was going on in Corinth is they were actually saying, well, we know Christ has been raised. We understand that's part of the gospel, the good news, the facts. But you know what? This whole thing about the rest of us will also be raised. Eh. Let's just kind of remove that. They said, well, why would they do that? What's the advantage? Or, or, or what's going on here? Now, it seems to me that Paul is not primarily trying to rebuke false teachers. Now, that's happened at other parts in this letter. You remember that? That Paul is, there's some false teachers who are going around and teaching new things, different than what Paul taught. And Paul goes after those folks and said, don't listen to them. Now, it seems more that generally there were some people that were kind of, I struggle to maybe talk about this part of the the gospel, that that we too will also be raised. Now, why, why would that be? So he's more... He's got a heart of a teacher here. He's teaching. He's not rebuking. He's teaching, primarily. He's teaching these Corinthian Christians a deeper understanding of the resurrection because the cultural pressures made it a little bit more comfortable for them to remove this. Well, what could that have been? Well, if you are a student of history, you would understand that at that time, and you might say even... At other times, perhaps even now, there was this understanding, uh, which we call a philosophical understanding called dualism. So uh, Greek dualism was very much the way of thinking before the gospel came, at least in the non-Jewish communities. So that's the majority of people that were in the church in Corinth. And dualism says this, human beings are body and spirit or soul Um, so we're a bit material and a little bit immaterial but they're not equal the immaterial the or sorry the material the body physical is actually kind of like a curse on the immaterial soul and so it just sort of weighs it down it sort of taints it it's sort of it's like a it's like a a gnarly sponge that sticks around. It just kind of soaks up all the bad stuff, and so it kind of smells. And so don't worry. At some point, the teaching would say, we'll be released from and freed from that stinky old sponge. And we get to now be uh, true to the essence of who we are in spirit and soul. So they had a very negative view of the material and, of course, a positive view of the immaterial. And so this dualism was at the heart of everyone that had become a Christian. They had kind of always thought this, that, you know, for the most part. So you can understand now. Okay, this is great. So uh, God has come in the, in, the, in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. I believe that. He's died on the cross for my sins. I, I need that. I feel my guilt. I know that I have offended my creator God. I feel that. I know I need that. Uh, and he rose from the dead to prove that it is finished. And that's cool. And then it's like, and we'll also get to rise from the dead with new physical body. Whoa. I don't really want to share that with my friends. <laughs> because they've been told since they were kids that they get to get rid of that stinky old sponge and get to be free and clear in the spirit and unattached. And you know, you see what I'm saying? So you see the cultural pressure there is, well, let's just kind of, maybe we could take that part of it out. The part that all of us will have a resurrection to a new physical body. Because that didn't jive. 
See what's going on here? And so Paul in love is saying, no, let me teach you how to be excited for this new physical body. You see, God created everything and he created it good. He created the material world and it was very good. And he created the immaterial world and it was very good. Both are very good. There's not a dichotomy here. The physical and the immaterial work together. The spiritual and the natural are together. They're both created by God. So we're not trying to flee the physical to some immaterial, spiritual floating around. We're actually excited about that God will renew all things. That there'll be a new creation, a new earth, a new... All all the disease will be ripped out of it, yes. But it'll still be physical and touchable and, oh, it'll be great. He's saying, don't (laughs) strip the resurrection of the dead from the gospel. It's part of the good news. I understand, he says, why you feel like maybe you want to leave that part out. But trust me, that's the good stuff. So here's a question to ask in your cohort. I actually don't have an answer for you. It could look different for you could look different for your cohort. Unfortunately, because I know, I loved, you know, before my sister died um, and several years after I worked in, in public accounting for a big accounting firm called Deloitte, and I had all sorts of coworkers. I got invited to happy hours. I got to hear how people think. Now most people that want to get together with me are Christians, and it's sad. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. But I don't get to hear maybe how the world is speaking all the time about these things. So I might not be the perfect person to say what the cultural pressures are, which parts of the gospel you feel like you need to leave out in order to make it more palatable for this culture, or your friend group, or your coworkers. So I want you to talk about this question in your cohort. So write it down. If, you, if you're in a cohort, write it down. If you're not in a cohort, get in a cohort. So write it down. So everybody should be writing now. If you're not writing, you should be typing on your phone. If you're not typing on your phone... I just pray you have a very good memory. This is the question. How do we, as people who have received the gospel, most of us in this room who believe that Jesus died and rose again, how do we bend our presentation of the gospel to become more acceptable to our culture? How do we do that? The Corinthians were doing that by taking away this amazing doctrine that we will all be raised again. Because it just seemed easier to them. What is it for you? Personally, what is it you for your cohort? What is it you for when you talk about the gospel with your friends or family? This pressure is true for all of us. There's something that we either take out or don't talk about as much or we kind of bend the truth a little bit. Just... Because we really care about people and we want them to receive the gospel. But we might accidentally be sharing not such good news. Let's talk about that. I've got no answer for you right now. This is why we need community. You guys need to talk about this. Figure out what is it that you bend? What do you change? What do you remove? Okay. I didn't know where to put this quote. I just wanted to share this quote. This is like a one-off quote. I read it in a commentary this week. I love it. I want to give it space. That's why I'm kind of talking slow. I just want you to hear it. While graveyards may remind one, while, while graveyards may remind one, of the brevity of life, the resurrection ensures the brevity of death. Is that good or what? I'm going to read it one more time. While graveyards may remind one of the brevity of life, the resurrection ensures the brevity of death.
Paul says to the Corinthians, guys, don't remove this part of it. This is what makes it good. All right. Now let's say we did remove it. Well, what would happen? Well, Paul very clearly says again and 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 again, I think eight or nine times, our faith, our teaching, our labor, it's all in vain. It's, it's vain. It's worthless. What does he mean? And is he right? There's three different words he uses in the Greek to all express the same idea of in vain. Um, You'll see it here in chapter 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. So that's a different word. Uh, Back in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then your proclamation or a preaching is in vain. And then for some reason the CSB doesn't translate in vain again, but actually it says so is your faith. So what else is in vain? Your faith is in vain. Our preaching's in vain, your faith is in vain, your faith is worthless, you believed in vain. I mean, it's just all over here, so we've got to understand, like, what, why, what, what is he getting at? So three, the three words are, the, are these, kenos, eke, and meteos. They all kind of refer to the same idea. Kenos, which is the most common, uh, means in vain, or empty, or empty-handed, Without result, without effect, foolish, untrue, without purpose, bare, destitute. So if you strip the resurrection of the dead from the gospel, you're sitting there, I love it, empty-handed. You like thought you had two bags of gold and then somebody cut the bottom of it out and uh uh-oh, it's gone. You're empty-handed. Eke means without cause, to no avail, in vain, to no purpose. There's no purpose. And I would say there's no purpose to life if there's no resurrection. Mateos, fruitless, idle, empty, futile, powerless. Without the resurrection, there's no power in this message, there's no power in this God. He just sent somebody to go die. And that's it. There's no power. Sure, we might think we have something to strive for in this life or some model of sacrifice, but in the end, it's empty. It's purposeless. It's fruitless. We'll just, we're just all headed to die. Hmm. Jump with me to this little section that seemed out of place maybe when we were reading it. I think it's more attached to this section than the section I'll teach on next week, which is about, what is this whole thing about Adam and Jesus and the man of dust and the man of heaven? So we'll talk about that next week. But I want to jump over to verse 29 and look at this. Paul says, so think about that. If it's untrue, what does Paul say? If it's untrue, the resurrection... What will be of those who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized for them? Huh. This is a strange passage, to be honest. Scholars are like, what is he talking about? He's clearly using some shorthand here, and the people in Corinth would have known exactly what he's talking about. So um, he's not promoting baptism for the dead, which some people do in, in certain religions. Mormons do that as well. He's not, he's not doing that. I can just be clear. Um, perhaps there was some practice in Corinth that was related to paganism, and so it was happening, and, and Paul's like, the only reason you're doing that now in a Christian way is because you believe they're coming back. So they're not coming back, then what are you doing? And that's foolish for a number of reasons. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's probably actually using shorthand here for just regular baptism. So if we believe this body is dead and dying until it comes back to life in Christ, then at at every baptism, we are the dead, (laughs) the not living, who are baptized into Christ. And so when we do baptism, we drop people into the water, buried with Christ in baptism, 
and then we raise them up to symbolize being raised to newness of life, to be raised with Christ. That's both now and forevermore with your new heavenly body. But Paul's saying, if we're doing baptism, it's just like we should just dunk them and leave them down there if no one's raised. That's what he's saying. He's like, what are we doing? Listen, we shouldn't even have those ceremonies. The whole ceremony is about death that leads to life. And if the life's not coming, then let's just stop wasting our time. Let's start hoping if this isn't going to happen. Let's stop pretending if it's just a metaphor for second chances or something like that. Let's, let's stop doing these religious things if the dead are not raised. Because why? It'll be in vain. It's empty. It's fruitless if we're not also raised with Christ. So then he goes on. Look at this. He says, verse 30, why are we, I think he's talking about himself and at least the apostles, but probably also all of them at Corinth, why are we in danger every hour? I mean, to be a Christian was to put a target on your back for persecution, perhaps arrest. And Paul would know that well. He used to arrest Christians. He used to oversee their stoning to death. Like, he understands there's risk to be a Christian. Why are we doing that? Why are we living this risky life? Then he goes on to say, I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, saying, I bet you do too. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, that's why I'm doing it for him. That's why I'm, I'm doing it for him. 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good is it? What good is it for me if the dead are not raised? Now, scholars will also say, like, well, did Paul actually, like, was he like gladiator? Was he like Russell Crowe out there just fighting wild beasts? I think he's probably using a metaphor here. Uh, and metaphors like this of talking about wild beasts of just like opponents to Christianity. He probably didn't wrestle wild beasts in, as a gladiator in a Roman arena because he was a Roman citizen and, and they didn't put Roman citizens to fight as gladiators. So it's probably just him using expressive language. So don't give Paul too much credit. <laughs> he's not that, but he's not that BA. Okay, so, I mean, he is, but not. Not like that. But yet he's still giving everything away. And he says, if, if there's no resurrection, guys, then he quotes Ecclesiastes, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I wholeheartedly agree with him. If the resurrection's not true, y'all are wasting your time. Y'all should just squeeze as much pleasure out of this life as you possibly can. Don't think about anybody else. Think about yourself because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then this is all you've got and you better YOLO. And you do whatever it takes. You leave as much dead bodies in your path as you can to get the most out of this life because there's no other reason to live. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Well, that's a strange thing to say. Yeah. Everything else doesn't make sense. It doesn't. If this is the only life we've got, then cold, brutal selfishness is the best way to live. And anybody that tells you otherwise is trying to steal something from you. They're trying to steal your power, your money, or they're lying to you. Paul gets it. The writer of Ecclesiastes gets it. If it ain't true, don't waste your time coming to church, that's for sure. Don't suffer for the Lord. Don't give away any of your money to the mission of God in the world. Don't buy anybody dinner unless you know that they're going to buy you a nicer dinner next week. Like, seriously, like, that's what Paul's saying. It's all in vain. If Christ is just dead, lying in a grave somewhere. And we don't get to rise with him either. I mean, this is just honest. I, I appreciate Paul's honesty. I want to be honest with you. tell you what, I'm out of here. If I find out the resurrection's not true, I'm gone. I'm going to let that sit, but we are coming to point number four and the amazing but that's coming. That's what Paul's saying. And then he finishes this section with his own but. But don't be deceived. 
Bad company good, uh, ruins good morals. What he's saying is there's probably some people that are telling you there's no resurrection of the dead because they want to eat, drink, and be merry for the morrow they die, and they want whatever assurance comes with being a Christian. Watch out for those kind of people. It ruins you. The people that want it both ways. The people that want to live YOLO and YOLAID at the same time. You've got to pick. It's either one or the other. It's not both. You either live once and you die, or you live once, only once, after death. Be careful of Christians in your life who want to have it both ways. They will corrupt you, Paul says. He says, come to your senses. Recognize you can't have it both ways. It's obvious it's either there's a resurrection of the dead or there's not. That's what his whole argument is. If Christ has been raised, if there's some Christians saying, oh yeah, Christ has been raised, but we won't be raised, so let's eat, drink, and be merry for a die. He's like, no, if Christ has been raised, then we will be raised. If we are not raised and there's no resurrection of the dead, then nobody is resurrected from the dead, and this whole story about Christ rising from the dead, it can't be true. Come to your senses. And therefore, what's the consequence? Stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. And this is a great line. I say this to your shame. Paul was saying this, and what did we say? Like late 50s AD, like 30 to 40, 30 to 50 years after Jesus' death. And he's saying, there's people that don't know about this story, and I say that to your shame. 2,000 years later, what would he be saying to us? These aren't my words. These are the words of the Apostle Paul who God has said are his words too. These are God's words. That there are people who are ignorant about God, about Christ dying and Christ rising, about the resurrection of all. That's to our shame. And we've got to wrestle with that. If the resurrection of all God's people isn't true, then we are just holding on to an empty bag of promises. We are wasting our time. We are suffering unnecessarily. We are missing out on pleasures in this brief life. There's no way around it. Paul doesn't deny that. I think sometimes I want to try to convince people that they're not missing out on anything by being a Christian. Paul says, that's not true. You're going to miss out on some stuff. There's going to be some stuff that you miss out on because you believe in the resurrection. And he's saying, if it's not true, then go get those things. Take those things. But if it's true, it's all worth it. And then some. I mean, you can't understand how worth it it is, Paul says. For Christians, our reward... (laughs) is the resurrection. Let me say that again. For Christians, our reward is the resurrection. That's not just Christ's reward, but for all of his people. This is the collective nature of the resurrection. Paul says in verse 19, if we only have Christian hope or Christ and the hope he brings for this life only... Like if that's all we get is to know the story of Christ and the teachings of Christ and even the community of Christ for this life only, Paul says, we should be pitied more than anyone. I love this verse. If you don't love this verse, that just means you need to lean deeper into the resurrection. Because this is true. In the same way that it's true that Christ rose, it's also true that we should be most pitied if it ain't true. And Paul doesn't hide. He didn't need to hide. Because it's true, he'd say. <laughs> As it is, it's true. But if it ain't, there's no one on earth that should be more pitied than Christians. Now, if you don't resonate with that statement, probably you're not sacrificing much to make the good news of Jesus known to all people. 
to live your life in such a way that you reflect the peculiar wisdom of Christ, the love of God that laid down his life for his enemies. You're clearly not doing that because you're like, well, I guess if it's not true, I didn't lose much. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a way to use this as a diagnostic to say if I read this and I'm not like, that is so true. There's probably some part of your life that God is saying, give it away for the life after death. What is that for you? What is he at? Like, how does this verse become so true to you like it is to me? How does this become true to you? What is God asking you to sacrifice or risk for this future, not yet experienced resurrection of your, of your body? What is he asking? I don't know. He's talking to you. He's not talking to me. I know what he's asked me. And I gladly gave it away. Well, that's not exactly true. Eventually, I gladly gave it away. It took me a while. It took me a couple years. But I, I never look back. I'm never like, man, I wish I hadn't given that stuff away. No. Because the resurrection is true. And now my hope is not dead. That's what Paul's saying. The difference between dead hope, if, 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 if this hope only lasts until I die, then it's like a ticking time bong of hope. I just said ticking time bong of hope. I meant to say bomb. <laughs> I don't know how the Lord works here. Okay. Living hope means it never goes away. The hope I feel now, it won't end. If we have Christ in this life and in the life to come. Oh, I so want, I so want you to experience this hope, this living hope. So, in Paul's argumentation, you've probably noticed that he's setting up these theological dominoes. It's like a theological house of cards. Why does he do that? We talked about this in my cohort. It seems like he's using a rhetorical device, this if-then, if-then, if-then. He's trying to help you see how central the resurrection is, that you can't just take it out without the whole thing falling apart. So, if you take it out, the first thing to fall is the content of the gospel. Because now we can't even say, and Jesus has been raised, if the resurrection of the dead is not true. So the content totally changes. So now we have the content that Ryan preached on two weeks ago. And we just have to say this. For I pass on to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried. See, the content totally changes if Christ has not been, or if... If the resurrection of the dead is not true, because then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. So that's the first domino to fall. Then the second domino to fall is our faith, because we've believed a lie or a delusion. So then that domino falls. The third domino to fall is the trustworthiness of the apostles. The apostles stand upon this one claim that Christ rose from the dead. And if the dead aren't even raised then Christ hasn't even been raised, and the Apostle Paul's a liar. And so is Peter, and so are the twelve. You see? And they're the ones that wrote the whole thing. So we can't trust them, so it all crumbles to the ground. The fourth thing to fall is the forgiveness of sin. And if you think you can have forgiveness of sin without the resurrection, Paul says, you don't understand the gospel. We lose forgiveness of sin if there is no resurrection of Christ. Because the receipt or the proof of payment is now gone. When Christ rose from the dead, it's like this proof of payment. You're good. God the Father has received the price. The blood of Jesus is enough. It's paid. Otherwise, why would he have brought Christ back to life if there was still payment to be made? We lose that receipt if Christ is not raised from the dead. The fifth domino to fall is that all those dead Christians that we've been hoping to be reunited with and hoping that we'd see again, guess what? They're gone. They're gone to us. That was a false hope. We'll never see them again. And then the sixth domino to fall is that thing I just talked about. Our hope altogether. Everything that is what it means to be a Christian, to be hopeful in the power of God, to be hopeful in the future with God, it all falls down. It all crashes down. If there is no resurrection. 
the resurrection is everything. Can't take it out. Now to the power of the butt. <laughs> I wish the Mariners were still playing because I'll just tell you my Mariners joke. Do you know this great Mariners player, Cal Raleigh? He's the one that hit the game-winning home run that sent them to the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. His nickname is the Big Dumper. <laughs> it's just so funny. I'm not talking about him or his assets. I'm talking about B-U-T. You'll just have to do some research on him. His power comes from another place, but this power comes from the B-U-T, one T. When you see B-U-T in Scripture, circle it. Usually something really great's going to happen. But, verse 20, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So like, yeah, if it's this, if it's this, and so Paul walks us through this whole domino, this house of cards falling down, and, and it's like, if it's not true, but he says, but guess what? God did raise him from the dead, which means there is a resurrection of the dead for all, which means our hope is intact, which means the eyewitness accounts and the testimony of the apostles is true, and we can trust the other things that they say, because Christ has been raised from the dead, as it is. And then he says he's the first fruit of the resurrection. Remember that word back in verse 17 that I said, pay attention to? Your faith is worthless. And I said one of the other uh, synonyms for that is fruitless. No. Christ's resurrection is the fruit of the resurrection that is to come. It proves that the resurrection is true. It's not worthless. Jesus was the first to rise. And then at some unknown time, we will all rise together with him. There will be a second blooming of that fruit tree, the tree of resurrection life. But we're not sure when it's coming. And we'll get into this in, in weeks to come ahead. Everyone will experience it, whether they're living or already dead, when Christ decides now's the time to come back and set up his eternal kingdom. So Grayson has this fruit peach tree he planted a couple years ago. I was sure it would not produce any fruit. I was absolutely sure, and he watered it every single day, it was unbelievable. And then all of a sudden, our neighbor walked by and said, those peaches are good. And we said, what? He's like, yeah. And he's like, I kind of doubted that <laughs> any fruit would come. And it was good, the first fruit. That was a year ago, and there hasn't been any fruit yet. <laughs> okay. But we know it produces fruit. We know it's actually a peach tree. We didn't get sold a lemon, so to speak. Year one, yes. Year two, no. Year three, I'm not, I'm not positive on it, but at some, we know it bears fruit. It's alive, and that's what it is with Jesus' resurrection. We're still waiting for the resurrection of the dead, right? 2,000 years later, we're still waiting, and that's okay because we know it bears fruit because Jesus is the first. Someday we'll all experience a resurrection like his. So, as it is, Paul says, we don't have to worry about this dominoes. Keep it in there. It's true, Jesus rose, we will all rise from the dead. It's certain it will happen. And we apprehend that through faith. So I can't convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt. I can't. I brought this book up here. Here's 800 pages from my seminary prof, my favorite prof, Doug Groteis. It's the second edition of his book called Christian Apologetics. In here he has great, you probably won't read every page, you could just buy this book just to support Doug, <laughs> and also great chapter on the resurrection of death. There's lots of books, there's lots of resources. I won't go into arguments for the resurrection, just Google it. There's great resources like we've never had access to of Really good arguments for the resurrection. Historical arguments. Philosophical arguments. All sorts of things. But none of the arguments will convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt. But what they will do is they just might convince you into the shadow of faith. 
And it's in the shadow of faith that in some miraculous, wonderful way, this mystery of the resurrection becomes true to our heart. And God whispers to us and says, it's true. I rose my son from the dead, and I will bring you back as well. So yeah, you will live always in this life in the shadow of doubt. But there is such thing as the shadow of faith. That there is evidence that can move you from, from doubt into faith. And God wants to move you there. So that you can experience the living hope that Paul talks about. To believe in the resurrection is to trust in it enough to base your life on it. That's what it means, to believe in it. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you trust it enough to base your life on it? There is a, a famous missionary named Jim Elliott. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a missionary to Ecuador, to the Aka people. Uh, who were living completely detached from the world so they've never had access to the gospel. At the age of 39, he went there to share the gospel with them and, and he was killed by them. Um, he said this before he went, in full knowledge of him going and that this is a real possibility, this could happen. He wrote this famously. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The gospel lives or dies upon the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ really happened. It is central to the gospel, to the good news of who God is and what he's done. It is certain in the testimony of the eyewitnesses, including Paul himself, and it is certain to us by faith that comes through the Holy Spirit. And all who connect themselves to Jesus by trusting and sacrificing and worshiping him in faith will experience a resurrection just like his. You can bank it. I guarantee it. Let's pray.